0: Hi everyone, before we begin today's episode, I wanted to let you know that enrollments are now open for my 12-week transformation program, Stepping Out from Behind the Smile, How to Stop Pretending and Start Thriving. This program is for anyone who feels like they're stuck on the hamster wheel and would love not only some support, but some practical tools to create a life that you no longer want to escape from. If you'd like to know more, you can drop me a note through my website, ashbutters.com, or DM me the word smile on Instagram. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Just a note to let you know this episode contains topics that some may find triggering. If you need support, please head to the show notes, where you can find a range of mental health support contacts for both Australia and worldwide. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma, and addiction. My name's Ash, and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, Join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today I'm being joined by Fausto Castellanos. Fausto is a spiritual advisor, clinical counselor and motivational speaker who is commonly referred to as the hope dealer. Fausto found a way to find purpose in his pain by creating a mindset that everything he went through was to help others grow through. Fausto has swapped his old destructive addictions for a new addiction, which is helping people to find purpose and healing. Now, dialing in from the West Coast of the US, I'd love to welcome Fausto onto the show. So, Fausto, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you doing today?
1: Oh, man, after that introduction, my day's perfect now. That's all I got (laughs) to say.
0: (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice if that played every time you entered a room? (laughs)
1: A hundred percent. I mean, I think I'll just pay you like a hundred dollars a day to call me every morning and tell me that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good morning. Like an automatic record. Yeah. We we can work something out for sure. For sure. (laughs) It's so cool to finally connect and meet with you. We sort of connected through Instagram and I absolutely love that you're the work that you're doing in the recovery space. And we're going to dive into all of that today. But before we do, I would love for our audience just to have the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. So can we kick it off with, where exactly do you live? What does an average day look like? And what do you do for fun?
1: Yeah. So I live in Orange County, California, the United States, which is by Disneyland. If anyone knows what Disneyland is, right by there. Great. And ugh, the second question was
0: <laughs> What does an average day look like for you? <laughs> there you,
1: you? go. So I got ADD so I'm already like forgetting. Um uh, okay. but an average day for me, wow, that's a that's a difficult one because I never really have an average day. So I'll share an example. Yesterday, I wake up, I drive 30 minutes out of my way to go do a podcast, I bring three people with me to kind of you know help them meet people too, to help them in the future. And then from there I drive 30 minutes again to go back home, I eat my meal prep because I'm all about eating healthy. And then from there I create flyers for my future events, I edit videos for Reels, and then from there I drive an hour to go to work where I do you know, counseling to run group therapy at an addiction treatment center. And then from there, I'll drive an hour to go do some boxing because that's my self-care, is my fitness. And then while I'm there, I'm also giving out counseling sessions to my trainer. So that's just how I am. <laughs> and from there, I'll drive an hour to go meet with a sponsee, go over some step work. From there, I'll drive another hour to go speak at a homeless shelter. And I'm there for a couple hours, making sure I show up early, stay late. And then from there, I drive all the way to LA, which is another hour, to go make sure that I make time for my partner, because I believe that you got to put your partner um, as a priority, even if you have purpose in life, because I believe part of your purpose is to water your love life. So that's like a typical day for me, really like Monday through Sunday, it's just back to back stuff, giving back. And what I like to do for fun, this has always been a difficult question for me because I know how to, I know how to help out. I don't know how to hang out. So to have fun for me, even though I have six years of sobriety coming up next week is it's difficult because to me, having fun, it's helping people, but I know I can't make it always about that. So honestly, it's, I think it's still something I'm trying to figure out.
0: Mm, Yeah. I really appreciate you being so honest about that because it is hard to find balance isn't it I know that I can really yeah. lean a lot into work because I find work fun but right. it's actually it's using a different part of my brain than if I was just to say socialize with people or go and get a treatment and really switch off like and I so I do think yeah. it's important to be able to find the balance but it's certainly not something that I've perfected so it's really cool to hear that you're in a similar situation Yeah. how do you not run out of steam because they sound like really full days
1: yeah i mean i've had so it's been a problem right because there's burnout and then there's compassion fatigue they're different Mm -hmm. burnout is just you're just stressed out from doing a lot compassion fatigue is when you're dealing with people's trauma and then now you get traumatized by their trauma so for me it's like in order to find balance i think as long as i'm not running into compassion fatigue then i can do a lot but also, I have to be very careful with uh, doing a lot because I get excited. You know, I just want to help everybody. I want to save the world. So that's something I'm still learning too because last year I almost died. I had a grand mal seizure, uh, stress-induced, and I was half brain dead for a month. You're kidding me. Yeah. So my whole journey has been me trying to slow down. I have it on my knuckles to slow down. You do. Yeah. I oh do. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. So I'm always trying to learn how to find balance. I think in this season of my life, I'm doing the best. Like I'm still doing a lot, but I'm not tired because Mm. I work out three to five times a week for me. I go to a massage therapist about once a month to get deep tissue. I go to the chiropractor once a week. I do the stretch lab once a week or once every two weeks. I meal prep and as long as I'm doing that and I have at least one day a week where it's like, I just don't exist, right? Like, here, my phone, my phone's off. I'm going home. I'm going to put on Marvel movies because it has nothing to do with safe. I mean, to kind of, well, actually kind of just have to do with saving the world, but it's, you know, it's more someone fun. Someone else's
0: problem. <laughs> so, someone
1: else's problems. <laughs> and I could just kind of check out that, uh, as long as I do that, then I could do a lot and not have to worry about like dissociating and then, you know, not being present.
0: Mm-hmm. And you just mentioned then you're, you're going to be six years clean and sober next week, which yeah. is incredible. Congratulations. Happy Thank early you. sobriety birthday. We get told in early recovery that recovery has to come first. And if we don't put it first, nothing else will be there anyway after so it, it, that was what was drilled into me tell me at six years sober are you still putting recovery first in that lineup of everything that you're doing in a day where is the priority for your own personal recovery
1: yeah what i mean 100 it's always first even with coming up on six years one meeting a week is ideal for me right now and having and i always have to have a spot see that i'm walking through the steps so mm-hmm. if i get a spot and they're done with the steps My priority is to pick up a new one. And I need to do that because it doesn't matter that I'm a counselor. It doesn't matter that I do group therapy, motivational speaker, social media, all that stuff. You need to get paid for. Uh, It's to be seen. It's uh, entertainment, you would say. And so I have to keep that consistent in my life or I'll lose everything in my life. Because I've tried, I've tried like to like, you know, maybe I don't need to do it as much. Like, I don't want to have a sponsor right now. I kind of like this. I don't want to go to a meeting. I'd rather use that time to work out more, or hang out with my girlfriend more. But what happens after about a month or two, I just notice, like, I hate everybody. Everyone's annoying to me. Um, I start th- I, I start thinking I don't have a drinking problem. I think I'm just chemically dependent. I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, and I won't do drugs. Like, I get it because if I do drugs, that's bad. But I can drink because I don't want to get a DUI. I want to drink and drive. I, got, I can't pay for Uber now. But see, that's that's what I got to be careful of because when I fall into that type of thinking, I'm like one second away from just losing everything because I know it's never enough. You know, everything I do is never enough. So why would it be different for alcohol?
0: Yeah. Oh my goodness, I I relate so much to that, and especially when I'm in the book and doing step work with a sponsor. Yeah. I know that I'm always at the best version of myself. And so often it's when, you know, you think you're too tired or you think you're too busy or I've got too much happening right now. And we can almost convince ourselves of our self-importance. And then yeah. all of a sudden you get back in the book with the sponsee and it, it's humbling, it's service, and it yeah. reminds you of why you need to stay sober. So it's so yeah. powerful on so many
1: levels. Like for example, just real quick, I was going over to the four step with my sponsee and, you know, and he has four months sober, and we were going over his defects of character, and one of them was um, overcompensating, right? And he was like, yeah, I think being a so-. – this is him talking. He's like, I think being a social media influencer, getting you know, famous on TikTok and being on MTV and all these shows, he's like, I- he's like, I think that was never me. I just did that to feel seen. He's like, because honestly, he's like, I don't like doing it. He's like, I think that's why I never really do anything with it. He's like, I get there to that top. I mean, he has all the top YouTubers too. Like they have one on their show. And he's like, I just don't follow through. I, I blow it up. He's like, I honestly think I just want to stay home, be on my computer, do day trading and work out for me, hike for me and never make a video again. And it hit me. Cause I was like, am I doing that? Because we're, yeah. Yeah. Cause me and him are so similar. We're the same personality type. We're ENFPs with the Myers-Briggs. Same, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, is that why I do so much? Is that why I help so much? Is that why I became a social media influencer and a motivational speaker? Because I wanted to feel seen. Because for mm. me, the only way I could build connection was through attention, you see. So now that I know I don't need to seek attention, all of a sudden, when I keep on seeking attention, it's almost like tiring for me because you know, I'm like, I'm like, dude, why am I doing this? Why am I speaking? And so, like you said, yeah, I think, who knows what's going to happen in my six years now, but that hit me really deeply.
0: Yeah. So, for me, I understand that need for attention. I really relate to it first and foremost, Fausto. For me, it played out in um, approval-seeking, people-pleasing, and also perfectionism. And what I found in my sobriety is... You know, alcohol was so helpful in, in the early days for me because it really helped to quieten the inner critic, which yeah. drove that need for validation externally. Yeah. I, was, I was incapable of validating myself. I had no self-esteem. I'm really curious to know, how do you get that if you're not going outwards to seek approval? How do you self-validate and build your own self-esteem?
1: Yeah, I think that's always been a struggle for me, at least six years, because I struggle with conditional self-worth, right? If you like me, I like me. Uh, I'm only as good as my last hit, I always say. And so I think for me, it's almost like this paradox. When I slow down and I take care of me, like I said, eat right, exercise, date night once a week, sleep good, you know, work with a sponsee where it's for them, not for me, where I go to an AA meeting and I don't share, I sit there to listen, right? And I'm there for the newcomers. When I have that formula like that, I tend to feel worthy. You know what I mean? It's weird, but it's hard because like to slow down means I need to sit with those thoughts of the inner critic. And when I move fast, I can ignore it. But if I can get past the inner critic and I just stay consistent with slowing down, all of a sudden I just feel good about life. And so Mm. I think it's just about me understanding that like, if I keep that consistent and get past that negative inner critic, then the self-worth will come in because I learned as a counselor Self-worth is measured by your ability to say no and your boundaries you make. So when I lack boundaries because I'm saying yes to every speaking event, every social media thing, every podcast, every church event, every meeting, all of a sudden I'm saying yes too much, and now I have conditional self-worth. And then when I start to say no to everything and I get past that negative inner critic, all of a sudden because I'm consistent with taking care of me, all of a sudden I feel good enough.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. It's just that beautiful saying, isn't it? Chop wood, carry water, do the things. And, and all of a sudden, the externals will fall into place. You don't need to worry yeah. about it. Like it's just about kind of nourishing yourself from within by doing those estimable acts. That's certainly been the case for me as well. Now, Fausto, I've asked you to bring in a photo today and I'd love to talk about it now. So this photo was from a time in your life where you are hiding behind a smile. So your insides didn't match your outsides and you were projecting one version of yourself to the outside world. But the reality was you were struggling on the inside. Now, I'd love for you to please describe what we're looking at in this photo today and what was going on for you at that particular time in your life.
1: Yeah. So in this photo, you see me, I look excited and there's actually a, a DJ table in front of me. There's turntables. So I was DJing a house party with all my friends, you know, drinking, smoking weed, um, and just partying, having a good time. Right. Cause I'm the DJ for the whole place. And I get to control the music, control the vibe. And I'm there with a the girl that I was dating at the time. Right. So I'm like I have arrived, but the reality was, is that, um, that picture, all of it was me just to overcompensate. You know what I mean? It was, how do I feel seen at this, at this house party? would be the DJ. So I learned how to DJ. <clears throat> all right, Fausto, I see you have tattoos on your hands cause you're for some reason showing it off in the picture. Well, yeah, I got tattoos on my body because I thought getting tattoos will get me attention. Right. it make me cool. Three, I got a girlfriend. So that means I'm lovable because a girl likes me. And being drunk, what does it do? It removes my social anxiety. It removes my um, lack of confidence. And it, it makes me feel connected. So it looked like I was everybody's friend, the life of the party, like everything was perfect. But the reality was, was it was just me overcompensating for feeling insecure, not good enough, ugly, unlovable. And that's what was really going on in any photo of me partying. That's why I party like five days a week because it was the only way for me to to fix that thing inside of me that was haunting me since I was a child.
0: Mm, it's that almost like that escapism from reality. and yeah. I mean, you just mentioned then that you've been feeling like that since you were a child, so I'd love to take it back now. Fausto, can you share with me what significant moments occurred throughout your childhood that influenced the person that you became?
1: Yeah, growing up, I grew up with a narcissistic father so my dad was selfish self-centered gaslighting always angry created this environment of walking on eggshells and so I wasn't safe at home I never knew what my dad was gonna how he was gonna be so I was always filled with anxiety and my dad not being around and cheating on my ball I mean I really didn't know what was going on but you know I just felt a sense of emptiness and loneliness and like just not like a priority and my mom was amazing, but, you know, you always want the love from the parent who didn't give it to you. And so it didn't matter how nice my mom was to me. It was, I wanted my father, especially being a male, right? I want the I want the father figure because I would see kids with their dads taking them to school, their dads showing up to the stuff, you know, them having the cool dads. So I would overcompensate by, you know, hanging out with male uh, friends, older ones especially. Like if any, like, older kid, like in school, elementary school gave me attention, I was like, oh, that's cool, you know? And so I was always seeking male attention, and when I would seek male attention, I remember I was about seven years old, and one of the kids from my apartment complex sexually abused me, and when it it happened, when it happened, it wasn't like it was traumatic. When it happened, I felt visible for the first time. Some boy was giving me attention, and whatever was happening, I don't know what's going on, but I felt visible because I felt invisible this whole time. And so it wasn't until the next day where the kid went back to bullying me that I was confused. Like, oh, did I do something wrong? Because why are you treating me different? Yesterday you were acting different. You went from bullying me to giving me all this attention that one night, and now you're bullying me again. So I thought it was my fault. And so I developed fear, shame, and guilt in that moment. And I told myself I will never allow myself to feel vulnerable again. So I developed to be the know-it-all people pleaser the class clown and manipulator and i carried those traits with me throughout elementary school and then after doing that throughout elementary school that's when i started you know losing myself like i have you know what i mean i was just playing these parts but it was working because i wasn't ever feeling vulnerable and then i get into middle school and the next thing that fixed me was a girlfriend Mm -hmm. because see i thought well this girl likes me which means that guy didn't touch me you see what i mean because it really made me question my sexuality i had no idea what was going on and so as i'm going into middle school i get this girlfriend all of a sudden i'm like i'm fixed i'm fixed that's when i get into middle school i'm dating this girl i'm fixed and all of a sudden the world is beautiful again the problem was 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 when this girl left me you know breaks up typical breakup nothing bad but At the time, oh, it was the end of my world because that was supposed Mm -hmm. to be my future wife, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I took it in so deeply because I thought she left me because I was sexually abused by a boy. That's what Mm -hmm. I thought in my head. So Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, my gosh, she must have saw that thing that is living inside of me, Mm -hmm. that pain, that Mm -hmm. insecurity, that fragileness. So from that moment, I said, okay, how do I fix this? And so I became a punk rocker in the summer, meet a girl, and all of a sudden I, meet, uh, I become a punk rock in the summer and then I meet a girl in eighth grade. So now I'm like, okay, I'm fixed. I got it, I'm fixed, we're good. And so she breaks out with me and then I go, oh my gosh, she knows too. So then I spiral again, become a skateboarder, I start working out, I was like, maybe this is the formula. I get in ninth grade and I meet a girl and I'm like, I'm fixed, she breaks out with me And then I really think, wow, she knows too. So as you can see, it's like these three breakups were really traumatizing me because I thought it was because I was sexually abused by a boy and they saw what I felt inside, that I was not manly enough. I wasn't clean enough. So then from there, I spiraled and I was like, dude, how do I get out of school? So I faked my death. That didn't work. That's a whole other story.
0: Oh my gosh, can you tell me? I'm so, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Hi, <laughs> so, hey, let's pause. How did you fake your own death?
1: Okay, so and back in 2007, YouTube came out and I was already tech savvy. So I was already making funny videos before YouTube. So I made a video of a car crash, incubus music to make it emotional. And I had a picture of me from fourth grade when I was in the hospital from a concussion. And I literally put it out on MySpace. And I said, rest in peace, Fausto died. And all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, cool. The problem is, everyone showed up at my house. And everybody, yes. when they saw me, they were so pissed. They were like, why would you do that? I, I, I get it now. Like That was totally not something cool to do. But in my head as a kid, I was just, you know, I was ignorant. I was like, oh, let me just make this video and get out of class. Yeah. Um, so that's what I did. And then the next wow, day, okay. I... The next day I told my teacher, because I didn't work, I was like, hey, teacher, I'm hearing voices to kill people. Can I go home? Thinking, right, not thinking straight, just thinking, like, this will get me off of school for a day. That's all I'm thinking. So they send me to the psych ward. I get 51 to 50. They extend it 52 to 50, which is 14 days because I'm saying I'm not crazy. And they're like, oh, that's what they all say. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So they extend it. So I have to like basically play – I have to basically pretend I'm crazy in there and slowly become sane to get out. So I get out of class. I get out or I get out of the psych ward, and I get my wish. They're like, hey, you don't have to go to uh, school anymore. You can do independent studies. So it worked. Mm. And when I was in that, now you got to think about it. I don't have to go to school, so I don't have to face my anxiety about getting my heart broken. I don't have to go to school and just feel like I'm always walking on eggshells because you gotta, I, I started to think that everybody knew I was molested. That's what I thought in my head. And so to me, it was like my escape. Instead of facing it, I'm going to avoid it. Hmm. And then that's when I got into drinking because somebody said, hey, do you drink? And since I knew I didn't have to go to school anymore, I felt a little bit more confident in lying and saying, oh, yeah, I drink all the time. Because I knew if I was to drink, at least I wouldn't have to go to school and get caught. Mm. So that's how I got into drinking was just one day drink some Jack Daniels. We took a shot. And I remember after the third shot, I was like, oh, my gosh. Mm. I feel confident. I feel seen. I feel heard. I feel connected. I have no anxiety. I feel like I can talk to everybody in this room that I'm drinking with. And guess what? My past doesn't matter all of a sudden. And this was the first time in my life that I wanted to live because I've been wanting to kill myself as a kid because of that anxiety, walking on eggshells, always not feeling good enough. And so to me, alcohol was like God, you would say, right? It was God to me. I felt God through alcohol. Mm. And that's what started my drinking.
0: My goodness. Can I ask when you were sexually abused by that boy, did you tell anyone at the time?
1: No, because I thought it was my fault. That's the reason why I didn't open up about it, because I thought it was my fault. So I just kind of kept it a secret. Mm-hmm.
0: And when did you start talking about it?
1: So I actually don't remember it. I, I blacked out because I didn't remember it till I was 25 and got sober. Wow. Yeah.
0: So those instances where you had these girlfriends, it was like you thought they could see something in you. That was like this yeah. darkness that you hadn't even verbalized, but at the fear and your own thoughts yeah. were telling you otherwise. Wow. Yeah. That must have just been so painful. I'm I'm really sorry. Fausto, who are you drinking with? I'm really curious because you said that you you stopped going to school. Were you still hanging out with kids at school? and drinking on the weekends or did you start running with a different pack
1: same friends you know the same friends i grew up with it's just that everybody started getting into drinking and smoking pot in ninth grade Mm -hmm. that was the thing because we were always like skateboarding sports you know just hanging out going to the mall, going to the movie theaters but ninth grade is when my friends all started getting into drinking smoking pot and so when they brought me to it i did it i loved it smoked some pot right after that Hated it because it makes me paranoid. I'm not the guy that can smoke pot and function. I smoke pot and I'm like drooling on myself. Everyone's staring same. at me. Oh my gosh!
0: Okay, it's the, it's, it's <laughs> the worst. I like yes. not smoke weed. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. So so I would just smoke it to fit in, but I hated it. But it was easier to get than alcohol at that age. So mm. anytime there was alcohol, though, I chose that. And then mm. and then this is where I was watching a YouTube video and it was a, a rave. And I was like, "Oh, what is this?" Because remember, this is 2000, like uh, seven or 2008, something like that. So, like, you know, YouTube was still new, and so I saw these rave videos of people like shuffling. And I was like, "Oh!" And this is before it was popular. I was like, "Dude, that is cool." And it's like ecstasy. It's a pill that makes you feel happy, horny, and you dance all night. And I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" Those are the three amazing things. Like, I want that pill. And so I believe I've always had the gift of manifesting without even knowing it. Because I saw that video and I was like, I want that. And then literally, I, I wanna say maybe a month later, a friend of mine was like, hey, um, are you down to do some ecstasy? I was like, what, you have that? He's like, yeah, my friend has it. I was like, oh my gosh, I've been like watching videos on that, yes. So the first time I took it, I was like, oh, this is, this is the best thing. Like this is better than alcohol. I want to take this every day. And so then I started doing ecstasy before my actual friend circle did. This is like another friend. So then I was the one taking ecstasy every day because, again, I'm not in school. So I could take it every night and sleep in and not have to wake up. I can wake up whenever I want. And my mom was going to work and my dad's not in the picture. So it was just me at the house. So it fueled it. And, uh, yeah, and then from there, we ended up going to L.A. County. We had to move from OC to L.A. And then I had an older cousin, so I was stoked. I was like, yes, I got a male cousin, older. He drinks, smokes, skateboards. Yes. Until my cousin got into the gang life. He started becoming a gangster. And so because of that, and I wanted to fit in, I wanted to go that route. So what he was doing now was instead of just drinking, smoking, he was going to you know cocaine. So I started doing cocaine, crack. I did crack. And then he got into meth. Then I get into meth. And then that's where my second traumatic thing happened where I got molested for six months because when I was smoking meth at 14, I had no idea what it does. Right, I'm just smoking this thing. I feel really good. Well, it it makes people really sexual. That's what it does. It makes people really sexual. And so now I'm this 14-year-old kid. There's this older man that's a neighbor friend, um, and I ended up getting molested. The problem was, was because I was under the influence of meth, because I was sexually abused as a kid, it didn't feel wrong because there was physical arousal. So I had no idea that it's wrong and I'm high. So I don't know what's really happening in that moment. You know, it's kind of like when people get drunk and they hook up and like, damn, why'd I do that? You know, but I'm a 14 yeah. year kid on meth, but on meth at 14. And so to me, it was like, after I was going on and on and on, then I started to realize like, you know, like this isn't right because I can't smoke meth like other drugs. Like it's really messing me up. And so then after that, I came to this realization of it's my fault though, because it felt right. And I went back and even though I was 14 and this guy was in his fifties, I felt like it was my fault. It was my fault as a kid, it was my fault as a teenager. So I had to shave myself and shut it down. And then after a couple months, we ended up moving back to OC and I was able to get away from it. And that's how I got away from that. But now I have these two traumatic things that I have to hide.
0: Mm, my gosh and so what was your solution then when you got back to OC were you were you wanting to get clean or were you just like this is the way I do life now because living sober is too painful
1: yeah so when I was I was about 15 when I went back and um, you know I didn't know anything about therapy self-help I didn't right it was just like there's never nobody knows about what's going on inside of me so my way to cope with it was to you know, just drown it with alcohol. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I won't touch meth. I won't do cocaine or crack. I'm just going to drink alcohol. That's what I do. And all my friends at that time, because, you know, I was gone for about a year. So all my friends are like, dude, we're going to house parties now. And our friend has a truck. So I was like, oh, perfect, dude. Like I love to drink, dude. I could get alcohol. Let's party. So I became the party house. I became the guy that you sleep over at my house, guys. We get alcohol, and it was just drinking, drinking, drinking. I didn't have to smoke weed no more because you know we could get alcohol easier. So I was like, "Cool." I was like I hate weed. So I was just drinking Halloween parties, Christmas parties, so Thanksgiving parties, house parties. I mean, anything you could think of. And I just became the party guy uh, that you see the typical guys with, like you know, uh, beer bongs and you know, King's Cup and beer pong. And I created that character until about. I want to say 18, and at 18 years old, what happened when I was 18 was uh, I took 20 pills of ecstasy, I overdosed, fell down a 20-foot ditch in a sewer, and woke up handcuffed to a nurse bed, because I guess when I overdid the pills, I remember everything going white, and then I wake up in the hospital. What my friends told me was somebody broke into a house in our friend circle, and so Cops were coming, and I was starting to overdose, and my friends were trying to grab me, but I was convulsing everywhere, and they couldn't grab me. And I started running around, and I tried climbing up this chain link fence, and I fell on the other side. And so they couldn't get me, so they didn't want to get arrested, so they all ran. And so the cops found me because I was moving so much. They had mm-hmm. to, you know, handcuff me to calm me down and take me to the hospital, and then handcuffed me to the nurse bed. So. Once that happened, that's when my mom knew I did drugs because she was in the hospital when I woke up. And that right there was my wake-up call, my first one. I was like, okay, I got to chill because deep down inside, I don't want to live like that. And so once that happens, I start working out. I meet a girl, and I kind of calm down because I'm codependent. So if I meet a girl, I calm down at the beginning. I become the best chef you got. The best boyfriend. I got the most <laughs> patience. I'm super flexible with whatever you want to do. But again, it's all codependency trying to fix me. And so what happens is I meet this girl, three years into the relationship, she leaves me. And it was a toxic relationship. You know, I could say that now. But back then, back then, I thought I only blamed her because she cheated on me. And I thought because she cheated on me because I was molested in sexual abuse. So that was my mindset back then before I became aware of my sobriety. But back then I thought she did it because I was molested in sexual abuse. She saw that thing in me that the white women leave. So I self-destruct, try killing myself. And uh, after that, I'm about 21 years old. I get fired from a job. And then again, something clicks, right? It's a foster, like, this is not you. So I have my second wake-up call. Get a job as a server, bartender, a DJ of 21 years old. People get paid to party, do cocaine and drink. I'm like, man, this is the life. (laughs) So so then now at this point, I'm taking steroids. I get 200 pounds. I'm in shape. I meet a girl. Of course, at the bar, we start dating. I'm driving now. I got my license. And I'm like, dude, this is the life. Three uh, years go by, same thing, right? At the time because she cheated on me as well. At the time, I thought, wow, no matter how many times I changed my style, no matter what type of job I get, no matter how in shape I get, how much money I get, any, all this stuff I get cheated on in the end. Mm-hmm. So I self-destruct at 25. I tried killing myself. I had 30 grand all seizures in a month. It was like really bad. I was thinking about an ounce of cocaine a day, seizing out. Um, oh, and I remember just wanting to kill myself, like constantly. And uh, th- that was my third wake-up call, which was my rock bottom for me. And that's the one that I reached out for help and which started my journey of AA was that one because I just couldn't see past that pain because I, I was just mad at God. I was like, God, if you're real, why was I molested? Why was I sexually abused? Why was my dad a narcissist and not around? Why did we grow up in poverty? Uh, my mom, oh, my mom got cancer too at this time. So I was like, the one person that was always nice to me Even though I manipulated my mom, I yelled at my mom, I used her, all that stuff, you give her cancer. So she was going through chemo, and I already felt alone and not good enough. And so it was all that when I was 25 was added that made my rock bottom, which is why I reached out for help. And then luckily, that person that I reached out for help read some scripture from the Bible. And it was that God gives his strongest battles to his strongest warriors. And for the first time in 25 years, I felt relief. I felt as if I had a migraine headache for 25 years and someone just read some wisdom and all of a sudden just like that went away. And it was the feeling that got me addicted to wanting to get sober because that feeling was what I was looking for my whole life was relief. And so that's what took me to the rooms of AA and that's what started my journey.
0: That's amazing. So was that 2017 when that happened?
1: Yeah, 2017 is where I had the perception of it didn't happen to me, it happened for me because I was strong enough to go through it to help other people grow through it. Yeah.
0: Mm, that's so beautiful. Oh my goodness. So what did you hear that changed? Oh, like there was that beautiful scripture from the Bible. But once you yeah. got into the rooms of recovery, what was it that you heard? What did you see that made you think, I, I want this life? I want to choose this life than the old way of what I've been doing for years and years that wasn't working.
1: Yeah. So there's a couple things, right? There was two words that really solidified me to want to go back to AA. And it was me too, because I thought I was the only one experiencing in that life. And so when I had that spiritual experience with the scripture and I went to AA the next day and I went up on the podium the first day because I, you know, I was a newcomer, I guess. So when I got there, they're like, hey, any newcomers? And I was like, oh, is that me? They're like, yeah. They're like, okay, you got to share. I went, okay. <laughs> and, and I have bad social anxiety. So you can imagine. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know any of you guys. And it was a podium meeting. It wasn't like you sit down in your chair. But as I went up on the podium and I shared my story for the first time, like I just shared it with you it was the first time. Um, And a guy came up to me, he said, me too. That's what solidified it because I said, okay, if scripture says that I went through it for a reason to help people, I just shared it now for the first time in AA and somebody said, me too. Thank you for sharing that. That means that was true, what I felt. Mm -hmm. And so that is why I was like, okay, what do I got to do? And they're like, get a sponsor, work the steps. And so because I got daddy issues, it wasn't a problem. I was like, oh, is my sponsor, my new dad, right? AA, Abandonment Anonymous, like I'm in. So I people-pleased, I I people-pleased through my steps. Literally, like I was like, step one, did it. Step two, three, you believe in God, yes. Step four, I'll do it. I went to a spaghetti factory, sat there by myself, did my four-step, and I was like bragging about it to my server. I was like, hey, look, I'm doing this stuff. It's like a four-step. Look, this is my trauma. And look at this, I'm forgiving. And... God literally used my defect of my daddy issues to make me just go gung ho on those steps. And I'm glad I did because that was the best thing I could have people pleased my way through. Because
0: yeah.
1: I experienced things like, you know, through the steps. I felt God more. I felt connection. I found peace of mind. I found purpose. And those are the things that is what pushed me to where I'm at today, which is all those experiences with it. Oh
0: my gosh. I just love how you've described that. I was exactly the same. Like I just wanted my sponsor to love me. So I was, you know, I was going through the steps, like ticking the boxes, like done, 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 it in early assignments done, A plus please. And it's like, you know, it wasn't until I realized that it's like, you'd never graduate the steps. Like this is, it's a design for living and it's something that we do forever and that's an amazing thing but at the time I was just like I just want to get through it and I want to get through it perfectly and I want you to love me but you know that's not necessarily a bad thing is it when it when it gets you to do the work I'd rather have had that experience than you know sitting on the outside of AA and just not ever giving it 100% and not ever getting to experience the gifts that are on the other side so Fausto you do some incredible work okay. in the space of recovery today. And that's what I really want to talk about now. Yeah. Let's start with, let's join the dots. How did you go from that young man that stepped in, in 2017 to where you are now, six years later, you're a counselor, you're a speaker, you're doing amazing things. Tell me about that journey and what inspired it.
1: Yeah, I had a vision when I got sober. And the vision was, you're going to save a lot of people's lives. You know what I mean? It was that with your story. So that vision, Really motivated me to look at the world through that lens. So I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do that, I got to get good at speaking. I got to get good at you know counseling. I got to get good at you know serving people. Like I had, I was trying to figure out. So to me, the way my brain works was I saw AA as a place for me to practice my speaking skills. See, I saw, I saw AA as a place for me to practice counseling because sponsorship, and then. I was like, okay, well, I got to read books too. I was reading five books a week my first year. What? Yeah. Like oh even my girlfriend even my girlfriend today, she trips out how much I read. She's like, you already read that book? We were literally driving. I was like, yeah, I read it. Like I became so obsessed with just growing and mm. healing because of that vision. So that, that was like my why. And I knew every time I read a book, it's like I hang out with this person. Every time I read a book, I become smarter. I become more wise. So I was reading – I was exercising. I was eating better. I stopped watching TV. I mean, I was doing so many things and looking at everything that I was doing for recovery as my practice ground. And then so when I did that, then I got into working in treatment about nine months into my sobriety. And I was like, oh, well, here's my opportunity now to help out addicts and get pain. Mm-hmm. So I saw that as like another like you know uh, nugget of, of hope. So I did that. And then I was like, cool, now how do I make more money? doing this. Well, I saw someone's a counselor. Okay, what do I do? Go to school, get educated. So I did that, got my education. And then from there, I was like, okay, anytime I saw opportunities to speak at an event, I would say yes. Cause like, oh, I have to say yes to this. Like I'm going to speak to a different crowd. Oh, I got to speak for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Like this is all me practicing because this is what I'm getting ready for, for my future. And so it was this motivation behind that vision that made me say yes to things and put in the work. I went to theology school. I got a master's degree in that too because I wanted psychology and theology. You know? I became a certified counselor. I became a, I became a life coach. And then I started being around celebrities. And I was like, whoa, like, this is cool. Now I'm around celebrities and this must be another sign. that I'm going to help celebrities. And so I would just hang out and I would show up to everything and I would make time and I would do everything for free. Because I knew I was a rookie. Like, I don't know anything. I want to know stuff, but I trust God will bring the money when the time is right. So that's why people look at my Instagram like, dude, you're everywhere. I'm like, well, yeah, but I naturally have been doing this for six years because of that vision. Mm-hmm. That's why I say yes to everything and go places place and show up. Even if it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter. It was a, it was a moment for me to possibly learn something or meet someone that's going to change my life. And so mm-hmm. – after doing that, I became an entrepreneur, started a group therapy business, started a business consulting business, uh, started doing uh, weekly meetings. They grew to about 500 people a week, sometimes a 1,000. And I just got to meet so many amazing and cool people throughout that journey. And uh, my life has just been blessed because of that. Not because I knew how it was going to work because everything I planned for didn't work. It was always mm-hmm. in a different way. Mm-hmm. But I've learned that by just being a loving, kind person wherever I go. And I don't make it about money and I don't expect anything in return. I give first for whatever reason, people like that. And then they want to bless me with money and they want to bless me with opportunities. And so just by being that person and having faith is how I got all the things that I do know.
0: I love what you've just said there. It is about having faith. And I and you spoke about that vision so beautifully. But the other thing that's really clear to me is the action that you took to get there? Like, how important has actually been getting up and taking action been in your life?
1: I mean, it's everything. So, like, it's almost like if we were to talk here, you'd leave for like two hours straight just on action. It would make sense to why I'm at where I'm at. You'd be like, oh, so it really is just doing the work. Like, it wasn't like you had a bunch of money, Fausto. It wasn't like somebody gave you an opportunity of a lifetime because you knew someone. It was not that. It was literally. My first year was, okay, I get sober, one. I work my steps, um, and I'm sponsoring people. Okay, that's once. You know that takes a lot of time. Okay, and then I'm working two jobs to pay my bills. Okay, so that's busy. And then uh, I was uh, working out three to five times a week. I went vegetarian. I threw away my TV. I was reading five books a week. And I was showing up to jump rope events. I was showing up to DJ events. I was showing up to church events. Um, I traveled to Oregon by myself for seven days to go and find myself. Um, I did um, silent retreats. I did fasting. I went. I did a juice cleanse for 10 days, and I went on a road trip. I started making Instagram videos every day. I was on Instagram 24-7 making videos, whether they got likes or not, just doing it and collabing and doing podcasts. And saying yes to even podcasts that has one view, uh, uh, it didn't matter. I was doing it. And um, as I'm going through this stuff, you know, I had opportunities to go to Washington, D.C., but I had to pay for it. I had opportunities to go do a certification. I had to pay for it. And so I have done so many things, paid for so many things, doubted so many things, burnt out on so many things. I've had my heart broken. I've lost jobs. My mom got cancer again. I got cheated on. I've lost a pet. Um, I almost relapsed many times. Like a lot of bad things too have happened on top of all that action that I was putting in. And so it really just came down to putting in the work and staying sober no matter what, which means I'm helping somebody out constantly. That's what really is why I got all these things. Because, you know, I've been in school for four years. No, stop. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's a lot. And so I've always been doing mm. stuff. And then I got lucky. I say luck. I got lucky that I was at a spot where I met the most famous life coach in history for celebrities. He happened to be friends with my pastor. I didn't know that, but he was there. So I showed up all the time to get to know him and then he introduced me to people. My pastor mm. opened up doors to me. My, um, the jump rope, I became one of the best jump rovers in the world only because I jump roped every day, made videos every day, went to jump rope events. You know, um, I started my own business, yeah, but I was donating my time for three years. That's why when I started my business, people hired me. You know what I mean? Business consulting, yeah, but I worked in the industry for five years. That's how I started it. Well, what about the ministry you built? It's so amazing. Yeah, we've been doing this for five years. You're just seeing what it became after five years of trying to make it work. We had days it was two people, <laughs> three people, four people. You know, it's just Instagram just shows the results or a moment of a day. Mm-hmm. But if you turn around, there's three people there only. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah, you don't see the hard work behind it. Faster, that is like all of this is so, so inspiring and like, even just listening to you here, I'm like, it makes me want to do more. Like, I, I it's <laughs> so cool to to really understand the, the grit and the drive that goes behind the success. Can we shift gears for a moment? You've been talking, uh, you touched on codependency and you, you're in a, a relationship right now. And I'd really love to know, having had the trauma experience of not one, not two, but multiple partners cheat on you. How do you stop that trauma being carried oh. into your new relationship?
1: Oh, man, you know it's, you know it's amazing. No one's asked me this question, so like I'm so excited to answer this question because <laughs> I answered in my head, you know, like yeah. myself. So, okay, so <laughs> so I don't recommend anybody do this, but these are these are a couple of things how it worked out for me. Some I chose to do out of love. Some I chose to do out of codependency, but there was a blessing out of it. So the first thing, when I got sober, I went celibate. I knew that sex for me and relationships was not healthy. So when I went celibate for eight months, I had time to look at my, my mind. Where does my mind go when I'm single and sober? You know what I mean? I want to know. So I had a fear of being alone and a fear of being unlovable. So if I'm with somebody, then I'm not alone. Two, if someone loves me, that means I'm lovable. You see what I mean? So it helped me kind of like hide from those. And then I'm insecure, but in the honeymoon phase, I become secure. You know what I mean? Because it's just drunk on love. And so I realized that too. I was like, oh, I'm insecure no matter what. It's just the honeymoon phase. Okay. So I learned that. And then I learned that sex to me meant love because of being sexually abused. So sex to me meant it never happened, and also sex to me was was introduced so early to me that that's how I connected love with. If you didn't have sex with me, that means you don't love me. So after learning those things and going through the celibacy, when I got eight months sober, I thought God sent me a girl, of course, right? Because, oh, God, I've never seen her in this AA meeting that I go to every week. She must be the one, right? Because I have the one syndrome, but everybody's the one in my eyes. I go, I've been married 50 (laughs) times in my head. I got girlfriends <laughs> in my past. They didn't even know they were my girlfriends. I never told them <laughs> because I never talked to them. So, so when I thought this girl sent me, God sent this girl. Uh, of course, I moved her in a week later. So you start to see like, all right, boss, I mean after eight months of celibacy, you're still sick. Mm. But after a month, I called my sponsor and I was like, uh-oh, I messed up. He goes, he goes I know. <laughs> and I go, what do I do? He's like, well, why do you just break up? And I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I've never broken up with anybody. They break up with me. So I found the guts to break up, and it wasn't easy. I broke up after her baptism. How messed up is that? But I never did it, and I was just like, I I just got to say it. So I break up with her, and I didn't go back. That's when I knew there was some growth. So God needed me to go through that. Scenario to see that I can actually break up with someone when I see red flags because red flags didn't seem like red flags in my past because it felt like home. So it was green to me. So I saw growth. Then I met a girl about 12 months over, about a year. We hooked up and I felt nothing. And that's when I realized, oh, I can't just have sex. Like I need a connection. So it was good to know that because I was like, I learned about myself. So then I got a relationship for two years and to me, it was my best relationship at that time. No drugs, no alcohol. It wasn't really fine. It wasn't toxic. But, it, of course, it didn't work out. I got cheated on. But the lesson in that was I was still chasing the love of my dad, right? Someone who's still self-centered, controlling. But it was just different because it wasn't drinking. It wasn't drugs. It was just more you know, behavior. So I didn't see it yet. But I needed that scenario to sit with the pain of getting cheated on. Because I cheated on my partners in my addiction, right? Mm -hmm. I did. Because it was my way to get back. It was my way to run away, whatever it was. It was toxic. It wasn't right. So I needed to get cheated on in a sober state of mind to sit with it in sobriety so I know what it feels like so I never cheat on my future wife. Also, it showed me that you can stay sober through getting cheated on. Because my worst nightmare was getting cheated on because that's been my whole story. So to see that I could stay sober through that, to know what the pain's like, to never do that pain, it pushed me into EMDR therapy, which totally healed a part of me that AA couldn't, that God couldn't. I needed EMDR therapy. It took away the trauma from my body, so now I can feel safe in a relationship. I can feel safe in intimacy, and I can communicate my needs. I can set boundaries, and I can walk away. So that put me in that. Then this is this is one of those parts. But then I got into an open relationship Woo! because because I was I still had a little codependency in me, right? And I was like, well, the girl was like, well, you know, uh, my therapist said I'm meant to be an open relationship. And I'm like, well, that's what I do for work. And if I told my client that, I wouldn't say you couldn't do that. Let's try it out. Oh. My gosh, talk about facing every insecurity I've ever had. I had to literally be okay with being like, hey, what guy do you think is cute in this restaurant? And they should go, that one. And I'd be like, wow, he looks nothing like me. Oh my gosh, he's taller than me, doesn't have facial hair, <laughs> like he's in shape. And it was like, well, yeah, that's my type. And I'm like, then what am I? So that forced me to work through that insecurity of like. Why do you feel so insecure about it? Do you think you're not good enough? Do you think I'm going to leave you because somebody else is attractive? You know, it made me look at myself. And so I was going to therapy at this time a lot. I, t- you know, I told my therapist, I was like, oh, I'm trying this. He goes, sounds like it's a codependency, but we'll work through it. <laughs> so, so he showed me love through it and I worked through that. And then it was like seeing her with another woman. And you would think as guys, it would be like, oh, that's probably easy. No, it's not because I saw passion in their eyes. I was like, oh my gosh, she doesn't sound like that with me. What's going on? You want to hang out with her more than me? And mm. so I had to work through that. And it was, again, it was just a fear of not being good enough. It was a fear that like, that people don't love me. It was, it was all coming to my mind. And then when it got into swinging and all that, I mean, it was just such a crazy experience, but it taught me this. It forced me to look at all my insecurities Head on, like actually live it, process it, understand it, and that type of community. The one thing I respect about them the most, communication is on another level, because you literally get to say everything. Like, hey, I think that girl's cute. How does that make you feel? Oh, you feel a little bit. Um, you feel a little bit um, insecure about it. Okay, well, let's talk about it. Do you want? Do you want me to talk about it in a fantasy? What I want to do to her first before I actually hit her up to go on a dates. Then do you want to let me? You want me to tell you about the dates? Do you want me to kiss her in front of you? Hold her hand? I mean, it was such an incredible experience that I can look at now from what it was when it was going on. But that is what helped me become secure, and that's what helped me understand. I don't want to do that because I can only handle one woman at a time. My brain, I can't even fathom two people's emotions because when I had two of them with problems, I'm like, dude, I got ADD. I I can't even handle this. Or you're mad at me because our second girlfriend is mad at you for what I said. And now you're mad at me because she's mad. I'm like, D- it was just crazy. Yeah. So, so that experience got me secure and taught me raw communication. And it got me to a point of, I know now if you cheat on me and if you don't want to be with me, that's okay. It has nothing to mm. do with me. And I understand that. And if you find somebody else that makes you happier than me, then that makes me happy because I want you to be happy. So now as I come into this relationship of in now, which is a monogamous relationship, I was able to, from day one, say, these are my non-negotiables. This is what I need. This is what I want. And if we're going to have sex at one point, I want to take it slow because I need an emotional, spiritual, and mental connection first. And when we have sex, you can never, ever try to be the assertive one in bed with me because it reminds me of being raped as a kid. So don't put your head like this. Don't put too much pressure here. Don't do that. And if, if you're cool with that, let's move forward with it. And so it really gave me the skills to walk into this relationship and she respected it. She understood it. And so in this year and a half of being together, the communication, I get to practice it. Not perfect, but we do great. You know, the, the intimacy is amazing because we get to take it slow and communicate and, uh, I've really been able to learn how to be in a healthy relationship, how to receive love, how to give love. I can make a mistake and not think it's Mm. the end of the world. you know. I don't have to worry about her next year to leave me. And there's a sense of security where it's like have all the freedom you want to do anything you want. But just know that means I want the freedom to do what I want because I'm not going to put my needs aside Mm. just to please you because I know you can't make me happy. Only God can. And I want, but I will do my best to put you first after my recovery because I still believe that's a need. But now I won't hang out with you seven days a week like I used to because I know I'm not, I don't need that no more. So that experience really helped me to be able to function in a healthy relationship.
0: <laughs> wow. Thank you for sharing. That was like so cool to get that insight into the experience. Yeah. What what you tried, what worked, what didn't work, and like how you've gotten to where you are today in your current relationship. So thank you for sharing that. Now Fausto, I really want to know what inspired your name, The Hope Dealer?
1: So people used to always say like, Man, you're so inspirational, you're so motivational. And then when I met my pastor uh he had this term called hope dealers i saw it i was like oh what is that dope dealer to hope dealer i'm like oh i like that yes. so then <clears throat> so then after a while i kind of embodied it because people were like man you spread hope you spread hope you ooze hope They're like you are the hope dealer like you are the hope dealer like be one. and so i was like okay i'm just gonna take that name in and i'm gonna run with it and so mm-hmm. then it just became kind of like what i do and i've been trying to build my my brand off of that, right. As like the, the hope dealer, I'm the guy who spreads hope for your struggles, for your healing and for your dreams. And that's how I've mm-hmm. embodied it.
0: It's beautiful. And I've heard you say that your mission is really to help people feel safe, to feel seen yeah. and to feel loved.
1: Yeah. Because that's, that's what, because that's what I didn't feel. I never felt like a priority. And so your wound in your childhood is what you tend to heal in others. So mm-hmm. I do whatever I can to make people feel like a priority in my life. And when you feel like a priority, you feel seen, you feel heard, and you feel understood.
0: Mm, It's so true, isn't it? I also heard you say something which I think is so beautiful and really resonates with me. You said everybody is recovering from something. Tell me more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think in addiction recovery, we think that recovery is just for recovery off of alcohol and drugs. But really, everybody's in recovery from something, right? Whether it's some heartbreak, financial, uh, financial things going on, codependency, food, cutting themselves, depression, anxiety—everyone's hurting, and everyone's going through something. And that's something that I learned from a Buddhist monk was that, like, you know, hey, we're all in recovery, brother. He told me, and I really sat with that, and it really made me look at everybody as one instead of the normies and the addicts. You know what I mean? It's like we're all going through something.
0: Totally. Totally. And it's that connection piece, isn't it? Like reaching out and asking for help, knowing that you don't have to do this alone. That's, that's what's worked for me. And what I've seen work for so many others is just that knowing that, um, no matter what kind of recovery you're in, like it's something that we do together. That's the power of human connection.
1: A bit of that.
0: Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. I've got (laughs) A couple more questions. I feel like I could keep talk to you for hours.
1: Keep, yeah, you, 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 keep, you keep it coming. I'm <laughs> okay, telling you, because okay. you're, you're asking me questions I never get asked. And so I get excited. I'm like, like that relationship one, I've never told anybody that online. Nobody has that information. Only the people that awesome. know me personally yeah. laugh at that story, too. They're like, oh, my gosh. <laughs>
0: Well, we feel very honored here at Behind the Smile. Okay, Fausto, talk to me about manifesting. You said really early on in our conversation that you feel like you've been able to manifest since yeah. you were young, but how does that actually play out in your life today?
1: Yeah, so, okay, so when I look back at my life, because I did this thing where, like, I talked to you how about, like, I manifested getting that ecstasy. Like, what were the chances? Mm, mm. And I remember when I was 18, I really wanted to work at a skate shop, and then I got a job at a skate shop. And then I remember I wanted a new job and all of a sudden there was a job fair when I was 20 out of like a 1,000 people and I manifested getting the job, you know? And I've always been good at like meeting famous people, getting invited to cool events and just like always cool stuff, even to my addiction. Like I was always with pro skateboarders, pro videographers, pro um, hip hop artists. Like I manifested being a bartender at my favorite bar. You know what I mean? Like it was just, I've always had that. And so when I got sober, I applied that same type of thinking, which was, I saw something I really want. I'm gonna act like I already have it. And I'm just gonna surround myself with the people, the places that may give me that opportunity. And so, like jumping rope, when I got sober from day one, my jump rope was made by Buddy Lee. He's the number one jump roper in the world. He's an Olympic athlete. I mean, he's legit, like spoken like 8,000 speeches. And, uh, I was like, I'm going to tell this guy his jump rope saved my life. I'm going to shake his hand like this, say so "Your jump rope saved my life. So I put that in my head. And so what does that mean? I got to jump rope every day because obviously I got to get good. Why would he want to talk to me? Two, I got to post it on Instagram because how is anyone going to know that a jump rope? And then I did that, acted like I hung out with him. I was like, oh, yeah, me and Buddy Lee got dinner last week. They're like, really? Like, well, no, but I'm manifesting it, not lying. And – After that year span, I saw myself go from uh, people saying, oh, you're really good. There's a nugget. Then all of a sudden, this guy came to do a jump rope meetup in Venice Beach. I was like, well, I have to go to that because this is what I got to do. Show up. Mm -hmm. And you know me, I'm like sharing my story with everybody there because I have to. I went to jump rope competition. and then the number one jump rope channel in the world. Those two guys were there to meet this guy. So I got to meet them. They did a story on me. That went viral. And then the number one jump rope guy in the world was doing a workshop at a CrossFit gym in my city. So I go to that because, of course, I got to. He might be there. He wasn't there, but his partner was there. He knew who I was from social media. And then they gave me some free jump ropes. so that's a good sign. And then a couple months later, that guy called me finally, the number one guy. I'm doing a jump rope thing in Washington, D.C. If you want to get certified, I know about you, brother. You're doing amazing things. I said, cool. Well, how much does it cost? He's like 600 bucks for the certification. I looked at the flight, hotel, car. It was like 1,400. And then I was like, oh, well, I don't have money. Well, I guess I messed up. But then somebody overheard me and said, well, why don't we do a GoFundMe page for you? I don't like asking for things. So they made it. Mm -hmm. I made the money within Mm -hmm. a couple hours. I got to go. And then I'm sitting at Benny Honda's with this guy. He goes, what do you want to tell me? Shake his head. Your jump rope saved my life. So I've applied that same method to everything that I do from being a counselor to speaking at places to working with celebrities to uh, podcasting, everything, right? That's just how I I apply manifesting is figure out what you want, act like you have it, and put yourself around the people and learn the skills that it's going to take to get that opportunity. And if you keep on doing it, You will vibrate. You will have frequencies Mm. and energy oozing out of you that somebody's going to look at you and be like, I really want to talk to you. You know what I mean? Because you're in that frequency with what you want to do and with them. And so that's what I've applied to everything in my life, and it's been life-changing.
0: So what are you manifesting right now?
1: Oh, man. (laughs) I would say... I think I'm just trying to manifest an abundance of wealth, where I don't have to work as much because I'm getting paid a lot more for helping others than I ever have. That's like the next thing, right? Because I do a lot of cool stuff. I have a big event. I raise a bunch of money for in December. We're going to have about a thousand people come for Christmas for addicts. Um, awesome! Why and I is got that famous happening? in Anaheim, California, right by Disneyland. Oh, great. And I got a bunch of sponsors and stuff. Um, you know, I'm working with like all these famous people right now doing amazing things. But I think now I want to get to that point where it's like, Hey, Foster, we'll pay you 10 grand if you come speak at the school. Sweet. I can say yes to one opportunity a month if I wanted to, it'd be chill. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of where I want to get to next because I want to have more freedom of time. Uh, but I want to be able to do what I love too, as well. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's the next vision is to God, just show me my worth. And I can see myself doing that for the rest of my life and just speaking and traveling and loving other people.
0: Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's beautiful. It's almost like we've come full circle from the very beginning of this conversation when we were talking about that, that desire to find balance and how it's something that, you know, for both of us right now, it's, we're still looking for it and it's something that we can strive towards, which is awesome Okay, there's one final question that I've got for you, Fasto, and it's a question that I ask all of my guests and something that we finish on here at Behind the Smile. The question for you is, what are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live your life today, happy, joyous, and free?
1: Three non-negotiables, okay. has to be, I would say this, you gotta love people. It has to always be about the people. No negotiables for me to live my life. I gotta live in purpose, and I gotta live in service. People, oh, beautiful service, and I already forgot the other one because my ADD. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I love that. I love that. It's like when you're waking up every day and you're living your purpose, but you're also able to be of service. That's like the golden nugget, really. Like yeah. you were sharing before. Cause you get that sense of like self-esteem, but you also get that sense of freedom and then there's wealth and there's abundance and all those things. I think that's right. absolutely beautiful. Fausto, I can't thank you enough for coming along today and being a part of the show. We say here on behind the smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you for everything that you do for being the hope dealer. And I can't <laughs> wait to see what's next.
1: Well, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on here. Thank you so much for the amazing questions. Thank you for your time and your energy. And I just pray that blessings and miracles and healing come your way and that all your guests can hear something from this that's going to help them find hope and their struggles, their healing and their dreams. And just I'm grateful to now have you as a friend in my life.
0: Oh, likewise. And Fausto, if people want to check out more about you, where should they go?
1: Instagram, Hope Dealer Fausto. On there, I always post videos of motivation, hopes, lots of positive things. I offer a subscription for 10 bucks a month. You get counseling from me. You get community with me, which is amazing. It's affordable. Facebook is where a lot of people in recovery get a hold of me. And uh, I'm always doing stuff on there. And if you're local in Orange County, California, um, every Sunday we have a recovery meeting from 300 to 500 people, with live music, comedians, speakers, and free food. It's at the Magic House. And it's one five six seven West Embassy Street, Anaheim, California. Sundays at six PM.
0: Oh my goodness! Well, the next time I get over there, I'm coming to join you. I can't yes.
1: What are you going to come?
0: <laughs> Who, look, let's let's put it on the manifest list for next year. I okay. love to travel, so and it's been I haven't been to the U.S. since 2019, so definitely overdue for a trip. You're on your side of the world, Fausto, Thank you once again. Blessings. Have a Thank you. Night. You as well. Bye. A big thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by hitting the follow button and leaving a rating and review. Each rating and review helps this podcast become more discoverable so more people can hear these stories of strength and hope. Together, we will continue to remove the stigma around mental health, trauma and addiction. Remember to reach out to those you care about and I'll be back next week. Until then.